Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. All right, we're back. It's another Carolina podcast, off-season edition. And the off-season so far has been way more eventful than pretty much any week outside of maybe Georgia week for the South Carolina football season. Staff changes continue. Obviously, early signing period was huge for South Carolina. We're getting closer to the late signing period. We're going to have an update on that. But I think most interestingly has been all of the turnover, all the staff changes that South Carolina has undergone, not unexpectedly given how the season went, but I think as they continue to happen after Will Muschamp keeps being asked in his press conferences, mostly by Colin Taylor, do you anticipate any more staff changes? At least twice he has been asked, at least twice he has said no, and at least twice there have been subsequent staff changes. We have three different staff changes to talk about, although one of them is just sort of an official introduction of South Carolina's new strength coach that we'll get to in just a second. But I want to remind you guys before we get into it to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. We've got a bunch of stuff going on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network right now. Colin Taylor and I rolling with the hard foul a couple times a week, trying to make some sense of what's been a very confusing and up and down basketball season. So be sure to check that out. And again, subscribe. So you go ahead and get it in your feed. You don't have to worry about looking for it. It'll just be right there for you in the morning when you wake up. Wes, Chris, we're also going to talk about the national championship a little bit later. But first things first, I guess, before we talk about the actual changes, uh, it was last week, last Tuesday, I believe, or I guess last Thursday, because otherwise we would have talked about it. Sometime last week, after we did this podcast, we got to hear from South Carolina's new strength and conditioning coach, Paul Jackson, and it seemed like the response on Twitter was way more exuberance and excitement than I would have expected from a fan base, given that he is a strength and conditioning coach, not a position coach, not a coordinator, but I can see why, because I was pretty excited. I like listening to his press conference, and I am now excited for Paul Jackson to be part of South Carolina staff. What were your first impressions? I mean, I liked him a lot. I, I think... Well, part of this is the fan base is tired of so many injuries, and no matter what percentage you can actually put on Jeff Dillman, the strength staff, and all that, it's really kind of hard to prove. Um, I, I tend to think there probably at least is something South Carolina can maybe do for, for some of these injuries. Obviously, some injuries are just bad luck, but point being, this fan base has watched South Carolina just get uh, completely decimated by injuries the last two seasons, and it's really ruined any chance of either of the last two seasons being, you know, exciting and successful. So, you know, I think there so some of this is just the whole change. You know, when things are going bad, people like change sometimes just for the sake of change. Um, so there's some excitement for that. But then I, I think you hear Paul Jackson talk. Um, he's got uh, he's got energy, which um, is something you always have to have in a strength, you know, 
strength and conditioning coach has to have that edge, sort of. He has it. Um, a little bit different personality than Jeff Dillman, which I, I think, um, you know, just for the sake of being different is uh, is important. And uh, then, you you know, you, you hear some of the more scientific answers and his approach and the uh, the working as far as uh, very sprint focused and, and some of that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think he had a, a lot of a lot of good stuff to say, and I can understand why the fan base is excited. And I imagine, uh, you know, we saw our first uh, video uh, production from Justin King's crew come out I guess that was maybe last night um I imagine we'll see a lot of those to get the fan base excited about that yeah and and I think the what we saw in that video which I'll get to and during the press conference what we heard I think fans were excited about Paul Jackson um you know because he sounds like a sharp guy but also you know, he, he's a sharp guy, and he's obviously he's a strength coach, so he's got energy. There's none of those guys where you walk away going, man, like, man, that guy needs a Red Bull or something. You know, you never, ever hear that with any strength coach. Yeah, he seemed like he had had about three or four before he got on the yeah, podium. Yeah, I mean, and, and so uh, those things are, are natural, but also, you know, just his background and some of the things that he said, I think fans walked away thinking, okay, these are some areas where South Carolina has maybe been deficient you know, and, and some areas that they could stand to improve in. And so, obviously, a lot of the questions, I thought he handled the injury questions quite well because it is a complex thing. I mean, you're playing football. It's a violent game. You're going to have some guys get injured. But just to hear his thoughts, his philosophy on it. Um, secondly, you know, the speed background. So uh, that's a thing where I think we're going to see some differences, and, and we'll see how those eventually play out. But just the way that he's going to train the players from a speed and agility standpoint um, I think he's going to be able to get some guys faster and maximize some guys. Obviously, you got to have, and he talked about this with DK Metcalf. You're you're not going to be able to make guys look like that. Not everybody's going to be as fast as Zedrick Woods at Ole Miss, who ran a four two nine at the combine. But he also said Carolina players have already been inquiring but, yes, if they're going to have yeah. him looking like Th- that. Would be mine. Like DK I, Metcalf. I wouldn't be as worried about looking like DK as I would be getting as fast as Zedrick Woods. I mean, running a sub four three, but. But, you know, he does have those things where he, he has worked with these players. He, he's seen good, you know, in, in these skill position guys. And I find it interesting because that's South Carolina needs more offensive firepower playmaking at the skill position. So, obviously, the number one thing with that is recruiting. But secondly, what can you what can you do with your players? Can you take it? Can you maximize it? And so I think people are excited about that. Another thing that I think is – um, from what we've heard, what we've seen, is, that's going to be a little bit different is just his involvement with the players. It seems like he's going to be um, even more hands-on, and we saw some of that in the video with him personally working with some of the players. I think we're going to see that, um, just the way that he structures the room, the way he splits things up, and uh, the personal attention that he devotes. I think he wants to you know, really make an effort to uh, be personally coaching guys when possible. You can't do that with a team of – you know, 85 scholarship guys and walk with 105 guys. You can't coach every single one of them every day, but the way they're going to structure it um, to where he can um, basically touch, you know, individual groups of players and, and have more of an impact there and make sure that they're coaching them correctly. Um, I think those are some, some positive, you know, probably changes to the program. I think we've talked about it on this podcast. If not, I've talked about it a lot on my local radio show on 107.5, but it's interesting and probably outdated that a lot of assistant coaches you know you you have a a certain amount of time you can't talk to players during certain periods and so a lot of it does fall on the strength coach but regardless of how antiquated how silly that rule may be that's the reality and I agree like the impression that I got from Paul Jackson was that it was going to be a more hands-on approach 
it's more about that relationship. And I think that's important because, I mean, that's the conduit to everything else the coaching staff wants to do. I mean, it, it's I imagine there's a degree of gamesmanship to it where it's like, okay, how much can we, the rest of the coaching staff, filter through the strength and conditioning coach in the offseason to basically you know, maximize the offseason outside of just the strength and conditioning part of it, which is obviously the core of what he's going to do. So that's interesting if he can cultivate a relationship. And again, I think that's a time and a place where change for change's sake is very important because if you're around the same people for too long, even if you respect them, even if you like them, love them, have a great relationship with them, whatever, there's a certain extent where you just kind of get tired of hearing the same thing from the same voice. So even if it's similar messages that Jeff Dillman was preaching, having a different guy in there, bringing a different energy, having a new relationship with those guys, I think can be very helpful. The other side of the equation that y'all have both touched on, and I think is really interesting because we don't know, I don't think they know, I don't know if anybody knows, but if you each had to estimate, just educated guess, as educated as you can, Wes, you go to the gym, Chris, you play soccer, y'all understand sort of, as much as anybody can, basically. How much do you think the strength and conditioning coach and his program has to do with injuries? What would you say the percent correlation is, with 100 obviously being all the injuries are directly related to the strength and conditioning program, and zero being it, they're all just weird accidents? Um, well, I, I think you mean in South Carolina or you just mean in general? Let's just, say in general. Well, it's hard. I mean, I, I think I I think ideally, <laughs> ideally, you want for a hundred percent of the injuries, which this is never going to happen. But you want for ninety five percent of the injuries to be just freak accidents. Mm-hmm. A guy, or or not just a guy gets rolled up, a guy steps wrong. You right. know, Not soft tissue issues. Not um, I pulled my hamstring. You know, I pulled a groin. Just you know, injuries like that are the ones that you can absolutely not prevent all of, but you can prevent 90% of them. I think you... Well, theoretically, some guys are probably more just predisposed to that. And we kind of saw that with Debo Samuel, and he had to change a lot of the way that he approached football in terms of his conditioning, in terms of his dieting, to, to kind of fix those things. So, Which I, I, I think is a... But that is a good example of actually using your strength and conditioning program, using a scientific right, approach true. to saying, okay, this guy is a little bit different, so we have to now sort of pivot and handle things differently with mm-hmm. him than we do the average kid. And I that's think true. that's a big part of it is it's not, you know, every, every guy is a little bit different, and you sort of have to do a good job of uh, sort of focusing in on what makes each individual, uh, you know, a little bit different and tailoring your program to them. I think, for one, you you almost never want to have actual weight room injuries um so that that's a big part of it that strength and conditioning coach plays a direct impact in and yeah I, I don't think, drop dumbbells on your foot i think pro tip you know i think having well and you know just use you know using the wrong technique right um tr- you know too much weight at times you know th- there's a there's a bunch of different ways a guy can can pull something or roll something um or sort of come up gimpy in the weight room you never want to have those uh um, wes what's your worst weight room injury uh, ankle sprain. Really? How did ankle. you do that? Were you doing like box jumps or something? Yeah, it was like a it was like a team building type drill, mm. and um, we had to we had to jump medicine balls like laterally, mm. and we were tagging 
you had to like tag in your partner when you were done. And my partner thought that I was done. So they went to tag me while I was jumping a medicine ball. And uh, they like touched me while I was in the air. So mm-hmm. I came down right on top of the medicine ball mm. and like rolled over top of it. But um, man, so you would not be a good jump ball receiver. Yeah. Well, I'm saying I got. You don't you don't have a medicine ball under you if you're jumping <laughs> on a field. But yeah, that's true. But guys uh, are running into you. No, I'm just kidding. That that's. But uh, but you know you know I, I think it's it's very very hard. I'm not trying to dodge the question. It's very hard to put an actual number on it. But yeah. Um, if if you start, let's just say this: if you start having a bunch of injuries that are sort of uh, that sound like that, oh, he's got a you know he's got a pulled hamstring, he's got a pulled groin, uh, stuff like that. That's probably a bad sign. Mm-hmm. If, you know hurting a knee, roll, you know, rolling an ankle on the field, stuff like that. Now, there is, I believe, research that says even some of that can be prevented by proper... Uh, cleats. Yeah, proper <laughs> cleats, proper <laughs> body maintenance, um, you right. know, stretching correctly, uh, you know, eat, eating correctly, you know, all this stuff, but... But then it seems like even within that, there's like a real gray area where it's like, yeah, hamstring injury, probably theoretically preventable, torn ACL, nothing you can really do about that, but then there's this whole weird gray area about like, what if you sprain a knee? What if you, like you said, just kind of like roll up your ankle? Some of that's like preventable, yeah. or I mean, not preventable because you see, like, I mean, it happens all the time. An offensive lineman, like, just gets rolled up on by one of his other offensive linemen that gets knocked over. It's like you can't really do anything about that. But like you're saying, how much of the rest of that in terms of that middle ground? Because I guess what I'm thinking about this year, I guess now to, to zero in a little more specifically on South Carolina, is how many of how many of the significant significant injuries that they had were preventable. It's like Jake Bentley. Having the is it a Liz Frank injury or is it Liz Frank surgery? Liz Frank was, injury. Okay, Liz Frank injury on Liz his foot. Fracture. Like, fracture. Liz Frank fracture. Right. So there's nothing really you can do about that. You know, Nick Muse tearing his ACL. Like there's not a whole lot you can do about that. I don't remember. Didn't did Rico? Uh, he, he broke his hand or something. Was that it? They kept him off really um, Rico hurt his knee lower, this year. Yeah, yeah. Someone had a hand in last year. Tyson Williams. Broke his hand. Yeah, maybe that was it. Um, I think in the Ole Miss game, right? Maybe. Did yeah. AJ Turner have a hand injury as well this yeah, year? Yeah, maybe that was it. Um, yeah, there's so many, you know, and then you get to the philosophy of where, because um, like, if you roll your ankle, part of the um, rehab to that is trying to build up the muscle around right. it mm-hmm. to where there's a chance, there's a, a less chance that you can roll it again. So, there, mm-hmm. you know, there, some guys may. This is a pro cankles podcast. Yeah, like some some guys may get hit in the knee a certain way, and you know they tear an ACL. Other mm-hmm. guys may they get hit, the same hit way and, they're and fine. then. But okay, Chris, do you have a number in mind? No, I, like I could because I'm thinking like thirty five, forty percent. I mean, yeah, and, and I'm all the West. Injuries. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not giving like a, the cop out answer, but we all you, both are now. You really like if you gave an individual situation and said, "Here's this guy." Here's how many injuries he's had in the past. Here's blah, blah, blah. Then maybe you could say it, and then what type of injury it is. If if somebody tackles him and he breaks his collarbone, that doesn't have anything to do with the weight room right. unless he, like, has never drank milk in his life or whatever, you know. Uh, um, but if you get a guy and you say, here's this guy, he's healthy, and you find out later that, you know, they're they're telling him to do, I don't know, power cleans, and they're overloading him or uh, they, they haven't taught him properly, mm-hmm. Like, like a lot of people get on this thing, they're like, well, we, we do or we don't need to do Olympic lifts, like do something different. Well, there's nothing wrong with Olympic lifts are good if you're teaching them properly. You know, make sure you're teaching it properly. Make sure you're not overloading guys. 
who can, you know if a guy can squat 600 pounds but he's doing it with awful technique who cares it doesn't matter you know this isn't a weightlifting competition you're trying to train football players and so um yeah i mean i don't know if i'd go that high because like the number one predictor for future injury is past injury and it was like when the doctor told me like i'm like well why did i get a hernia aside from you know some of the sports i play are like high impact type of things you know strains but he said well it's past hernia which i did have one when i was actually when i was a baby so then it's like begs the question well how did i get that you were lifting even as a baby i guess so yeah starting early lifting the lifting the bottle or whatever (laughs) but you know so you got to look you look at past history um, you look at, uh, and we've seen some guys at South Carolina, like, remember they had a couple of shoulder redos basically on the surgery. So that, you know, you get a guy say, well, why is his shoulder hurt? Well, he injured it in high school and then they messed up the surgery. And so now you're having to do it again and he's out. Um, so there's just so many different factors between how are you training? What's your diet? What's his past injury history? I don't know if I'd go that high. I okay. might go so maybe 25. Maybe even lower than that. Okay, so yeah, th- this is yeah. great. So we all agree it's less than 50%. Maybe significantly, maybe yeah. marginally. But the point is, even like a, I think a, even a liberal estimate would probably say it's not 50%. And I think we all agreed at the time when South Carolina left, let go of Jeff Dillman, ostensibly it was like, okay, well, we need to change something because we have all these injuries. But that's not really why they let Jeff Dillman go. I think it had more to do, like we're saying, for the change for change sake, getting someone in there to have a different relationship, a different voice, a different kind of message, just to sort of re-empower that part of the team. So I don't know exactly how much of an impact Paul Jackson's hire is going to make you know, in, in that department necessarily because it's, there's six guys missing spring. Mo Caba, towards ACL in high school, so obviously had nothing to do with South Carolina strength and conditioning program. Nick Muse, towards ACL, nothing you can do about that. Dylan Wanham, his hips were growing wrong, so like that's not Jeff Delman's fault. Um, the other guys, let's see, there's three more guys. Somebody else had a, had a, some kind of chronic like genetic issue that had to get resolved this off season. And well, Ty- Tyree Johnson had the sublux kneecap, right? Like, sublux kneecap, like yeah, Ortre, like Ortre. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. that's not Jeff Delman's fault. And then Jalen Dickerson had nerve damage. We we, we don't really know that he's had yeah. some weird and then there injuries. Was one more. Who was that? I don't remember who the other one is. Um, doesn't matter. Point is. A lot of these weren't Jeff Dillman's fault, and it's not necessarily going to be up to Paul Jackson to yeah. solve them. But to whatever extent those things are preventable, whether it's 25%, 35%, 15%, 5%, whatever the number is, I think what you mentioned earlier, his sprint-based approach is really compelling. As someone that knows almost nothing about strength and conditioning, especially at this level, it's weird because I've always just considered sprinting like, oh, that's just like what you do. That's just like part of working out. But that's seems to be his central philosophy and it makes sense because football is a game of sprint and recover sprint and recover sprint and recover you know 50 60 70 times a game and it seems weird that anyone's approach would not be that and that conditioning your players for that specifically could prevent some of those more preventable injuries and i, I think that's really interesting and i don't know i i have no idea if you if you put a gun to my head right now and said what was jeff dillman's like central philosophy of strength and conditioning, I don't know because I never asked him and I don't remember him talking about it in his introductory press conference. So it very well could have been the same thing, in which case, you know, I'm excited and cautiously optimistic for no real reason. But to hear Paul Jackson talk about it, to describe sort of his process in building a program around that, I I think does give you some optimism that whatever percent of these injuries for Carolina that have been preventable might be reduced in the coming years. Well, 
it, it is interesting because you look at, like a lot of people think about the whole philosophy of, you know, get get bigger, stronger, faster, and, and get conditioned better, and you just think about, okay, run, you know, what are these crazy numbers of the gassers or whatever they would run in the yeah. 110s? Like, run go, go, run, go like 31 10s. Go, go run 31 10s, and it's like, wow, that sounds really hardcore, and it is. But is it? Oh my gosh, a, yeah. There is a place for that. It's like, like three miles of sprints. Almost. Th- there are some days where you're or probably going to have two miles of sprints. Yeah, I mean, there's some days where you're probably going to have days where it's just like sort of a get tough day, and you're just sort of dropping the guys like mm-hmm. flies, you know. Yeah, uh, and that's exactly what he said. He's like, you know, we're not trying to make them throw up every day, but some days we're going to be dropping guys. Yeah, I, I mean, like, you, yeah. you want to do that some because there there is from a foot. I mean, it's football, but. Most days, you're not just going out there and say, okay, run till you're dead tired. Is mm-hmm. that really training the player? It's the same deal with weights. Okay, if, if you're just loading up the bar and say, look at all this weight I'm throwing up. I mean, that's cool, but are you are you throwing out your back while you're doing it? Are you being productive with it? So being productive with the runs, having sort of a progression of, and he talked about that some, you know, without remembering the numbers off the top of my head of, getting guys to run at certain capacities and then you know one thing you did say i remember how do you get better at sprinting how do you get faster well you sprint mm-hmm. you know and at the end of a you know if you've run 25 110s it's only natural unless you're a robot that you're not going to be at the capacity you were on number one or number five you know you can eventually get a little bit more to where you're you know you're running at a higher percentage but you need to have that progression of maybe running less at a bigger speed you know, greater velocity, and then you sort of progress from there, and then you get faster. And like you said earlier, Pearson, that's what football is. I mean, there aren't many times where you're running 100 yards, period, but a lot of it is about start, stop, oh, by the way, while somebody's trying to kill you, you know, on the field. Mm-hmm. How many yeah. How many 110s, I'll say, first of all, how many 110s do you think you all could run right now if you just, hey, stretch, go out there? I mean – I could run all 30, but my last one would take me about a minute. Yeah, I was going to say, how many could you actually like run similarly at a speed similar to what your first one was? Is my first one 100% or can I run this at like 80? No, I mean, I don't think anybody can go out there and do 100. Even yeah. these guys, you're pacing yourself a bit, right? Like, yeah. it's 110. That's... I, uh, I could probably do 15 to 18. What do you think the average, just the average person? Oh, like, like if, listening to this, just walking the streets, or average person yeah. on Carolina's football team? No, the average person just three, three. That may know. be high. I, I did, I did a similar it, workout with my brother this summer because he was training for soccer. He plays at Wofford, and so well, I was like, soccer people when it comes to running are just well, yeah, it's insane. ridiculous, and it's yeah. it. Well, but but it is, it's a very similar kind of conditioning. Like I was a lot better for like soccer conditioning and rugby conditioning when I was doing those than just running cross country because mm-hmm. um, it is more like sprint and recover. But it was like, oh my God, we used to do these things in rugby called Henny Mullers um, where you start in one corner because rugby field is the same as a football field. You just count like the back season, so it's 120. And you start by sprinting diagonally across the field, jog the short side, sprint the other diagonal, jog the short side, sprint the long side, jog, sprint, jog, just sprinting all the long sides. And that was one. And we would do like three or four of those after practice. <laughs> I'm getting Yikes. tired just thinking about that. It was brutal. We we did like a New Zealand I, thing. One of the F three workouts we did on a on a Wednesday. It was called like Fuel or something. I went I went once when I was um actually right after my hernia surgery. Not right after, but several weeks after when I was and that was like my first running. That was sort of a bad idea Whew. because we did. It was a forty five minute 
workout, and we did, I can't remember, it was like, and I think it was 100 yards, and we did like 20 to 30, something like oh my that. Gosh. It was pretty rough. Yeah. But I took it pretty easy because, you know. Because you had a hernia. Yeah. <laughs> needed to, I was still sort of hurting then. Yeah. I'm but, sure. yeah, that was, I mean, thinking about doing that at as close to as hard as I got, I, I would have passed out. I yeah. And if, if, I'm sure. Especially in July. It, you know, and when they when they do these, when they would do these 110s, depending on your position group, you you do have to get there in a certain amount of time for it to count. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, there being time to keep them, to make them actually run. But, uh it's human nature. You're if you know you have twenty eight of these things, you're getting there. You're pacing it to the you. You know how long it takes you, or how much energy you have to exert to do it. In yeah, if you have thirteen or fourteen seconds to do it, you're going to take thirteen or fourteen seconds it, to do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's not a true sprint. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're pacing it to where you get there right before mm. you know the cutoff. So I, I think Paul Jackson's point is let's cut the field down to an actual distance we're going to normally run, mm-hmm. but then you're truly sprinting. You know, it's it's more of an interval training type approach. Sprint, recover for a second. Sprint, but when you're sprint, like when you're on, you're, you know, you're at 95%, 99 you know, whatever, as opposed to 75% right. capacity, I think. So I'll be very curious to see if there will be a noticeable difference in this team in that respect this season. I don't know if it'll be I don't know if it's one off season's worth of progress we'll be able to notice or if it'll take a couple of years. I don't know, but he was fun to listen to in the press conference. He I and you know, whenever a new coach comes in and wins the press conference, everybody's like, you know, oh, you know, this guy's going to be great. You yeah. know, everyone's going to look like DK Metcalf, Ryan Holinsky's going to look like DK Metcalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I I do think he he comes across as a guy that would connect with the yeah. players. Yeah. Um a little bit more, a little bit. I feel like a little bit younger energy. Um, I don't know. I, I like it. Um, positive change, I believe. That was a really productive and informative press conference as well, because not only did we get our introduction to Paul Jackson, but I think a, a surprise to a lot of people. And I had seen it just a couple hours earlier, Wes. I don't know if you actually scooped this. If so, nice job. If not, you were the first person that I saw mention that we might get some other coaching news in that press conference, and we did. And it was, in fact, the hiring of Joe Cox, the wide receiver coach from Colorado State, who was there the entire time Mike Bobo was there, who followed Bobo now to Columbia to be the tight ends mm. coach, which pushes Bobby Bentley to maybe the quarterback coach Quarterback's or assistant coach, quarterback of, yeah. coach, yeah. some kind of offensive support. And for those of you that you know missed the, this conversation last week, you're like, well, wait a second. Now you have one too many assistant coaches. That is pushing uh, Kyle Krantz off of his on-the-field role into an off-the-field analyst role. Um, but I think the the biggest part of this is bringing in Joe Cox, someone that South Carolina fans will remember. He beat South Carolina in 2009 as the quarterback for Georgia. That was a great adding, football game. Yeah, that was. He was, let's see, he was like 17 to 24 for like 200 yards and two touchdowns and a pick. Um, was it 41-37, something like that. So Carolina fans probably don't have good memories of Joe Cox. But you had one more Georgia guy to the staff because I know all Carolina fans are thinking, you know what, this staff's really missing another Georgia guy. Um, but you bring in... Also, Someone bonus that, points that he was also at Colorado State. Too. Right. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. So, so double continuity bonus, which in all seriousness, <laughs> right after the hire, I talked about it with Eric Camry on, on my local show. And it was like, when you have a lot of staff turnover, it's nice to have some continuity between a lot of the coaches to sort of ease that transition. And I think that's no small part of why this hire was made. 
Uh, the other part of it, before he started coaching in college, he was a successful high school coach for a couple of years in North Carolina, so he's familiar with some of the high school coaches, some of the high school programs, probably already has some relationships in terms of those recruiting trails, which is a big part of it, obviously, for South Carolina in that Rock Hill, Charlotte area where I think he's going to mostly focus his attention. Um, but overall, this seems like a pretty good hire for Carolina. I, I think a big part of it was getting in a guy that um, has worked under Bobo, understands his system, understands terminology for it, understands uh, exactly what he wants. Every, every offensive coordinator or defense coordinator really wants to have his guys on staff, I think. Now, for South Carolina, part of the reason we talked about it, that it worked out with Bobo, is that he's already got several of his former guys, BMAC, um, Thomas Brown, on staff. So Not that, to mention you got Colin Hill and Adam Prentice in the locker room now helping, ease, I guess, ease that transition with the players as well. Yeah, so that, that made sense. Um now, I think Joe Cox being a guy that he's worked with, that that he sees as an up-and-comer, um, that he, I imagine, wanted to continue to work with, obviously, wanted to continue to help out as far as, um, you know, his career and wanted him around. Uh, it, it just makes sense. Everybody wants somebody that understands them around. And uh, this sort of moving Kyle Krantz off the field really was the, I guess, only way that it, that it made a lot of sense. Um, you could have, I guess conceivably just brought in Joe Cox as the the role that Bentley's in and left everything else the same would have also made sense but um as far as taking a guy off you know the on-field staff taking Krantz off is is what made the most sense I think so um you know we'll see he's a young up-and-comer I we've had we've had people complaining about the fact that it's another Georgia guy we've had people complaining about the fact that he came from Colorado State um point fact fact of the matter is none of that matters if he can coach and none of that matters if he can't coach really what matters is if he can coach or not you know where he came from where he went to school the fact he was at CSU none of that matters whatsoever it's about can he coach sorry to interrupt you I, I have a question if South Carolina could be as good of a program as Georgia was when they were rolling with Mike Bobo and when B-Mac was an assistant there and Thomas Brown, I think, was a grad assistant there at one point, um, is that a negative? Depends on who you ask. Well, it would be a vast improvement no, from yeah, where I things are right yeah, now, I'm being right? a little bit sarcastic because <laughs> I think people that like to complain about those things just like to complain, and we'll find like, things to complain about anyway. Like, I know Georgia didn't win, like, a national championship, but they played in Atlanta at some, and they were generally quite good. Everybody's like, well, well, uh, they only scored seven points against the 2012 South Carolina team. It's like, yeah, that team whipped a lot of people, you know? I mean, like, that was, like, one of their worst games in South Carolina. It was Carolina. also a perfect storm it, yeah, it for just, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, you had, just, like, an interception on a tip ball, the third possession of the game, you had a punt return, yeah, and that was, yeah. I don't know. And the maybe stadium. the best, the best South Carolina defense ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, maybe it, the best South Carolina team. Top yeah. to bottom, it was the best South Carolina team. I, I don't even know if you can argue that. That but was a, anyway. per, a perfect night for South Carolina. It was. Game day. So I yeah, like, out that night. A, a lot of people go and they look. You know, well, well, Georgia only scored this many points in that game. Yeah, I mean, they generally they were pretty good. I mean, like. Every, and, and then everybody's like, well, why can't we be have a running game like Georgia? Well, I mean, maybe this is – I'm not saying this is going to be it, right? But but you got Thomas like, Brown, Georgia. You got, yeah. you know, Brian McClendon still on staff, Georgia. 
You got yeah. Mike Bobo, Georgia, and you got Marshawn Lloyd, who's from Georgia. Wait, no, he's from Delaware, isn't he? He's from mm-hmm. Delaware, but, but he's he like was, a he big was, Georgia, he Georgia target. He's guy. the type of back that they yeah. always So there forget. you go. You're, you're putting together the, the Georgia offense and the Georgia backfield right there. Yeah, so, I mean, I, all I'm saying is, like, and everybody's hung up on, like, well, Muschamp, I mean, yeah, Muschamp, like, I mean, people get hung up on the, it, it really has nothing to do with whether or not it works if Muschamp knows the people or if he doesn't. Is it a mm-hmm. good hire? Because he's hired people he didn't know in the past and they didn't work. And he's hired people he's known in the past and it didn't work. Or sometimes he's hired people that work at other positions that he's known or vice versa. So, I mean, I think the big deal is are you hiring a good staff? It doesn't matter. I mean, right. Dabo Swinney at Clemson has hired or taken commitments from a bunch of people with, you know, he's got ties to or buddies of his, right? Mm-hmm. That's worked out pretty pretty well. And I'm not saying that's going to be the case here. I mean, it's no, but just... It's, it's, and it's complicated, and you can extend this to everything. It's not just football. It's, you know, corporations and business and just everything you do. There is a lot of value to having continuity, especially when you're changing an offensive system. You know, you bring in Mike Bobo. That's a big change. You're changing the verbiage of your offense. You're changing the philosophy of your offense. You're changing the play call. You're doing a lot. So what can you do to smooth that transition over? Because you basically have a year to figure this out until you're back exactly in the position where the position you were in at the end of this past season. So what do you do to smooth it out? You bring in the quarterback that ran Mike Bobo's system. You bring in the fullback that was like really an integral piece of what they did at Colorado State. You bring in their wide receivers coach. You coach your tight ends. And again, just to be another liaison to help smooth that transition. So I think there is a lot of value in having some of that continuity. But you do have to be careful because a lot of times when you see corporations run into the ground, it's because you're hiring too much sameness. There's not enough variety. You know, variety, collaboration, having dissenting of opinions and dissenting voices and viewpoints in any sort of meeting room. Again, whether it's a business, whether it's, I mean, I guess football is a business, whether it's like, you know, a, a suit and tie business, whether it's a, you know, whistles and hats and tank tops business, it is valuable to have those, I guess, disparate viewpoints because that's you know the, the, that's the source of like creativity and like real progress i believe like fundamentally so i, I think there i think some people are probably right to be concerned about south carolina hiring all those georgia guys even if they're not thinking about it like that i think some people just hear oh georgia 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 i hate this you can hate it but that's probably not the right reason to hate it but i don't know what the balance is between valuing continuity versus valuing differences but i also think and we talked about this when mike bobo got hired the fact that he has head coaching experience maybe maybe gives you a little more variety in your coach's meeting room to, I guess, help introduce some of that into the South Carolina staff. Yeah, I mean, Paul Jackson hire that's that's a guy that's not directly on the must no. champ. LSU Ole Miss, or, right? Yeah. Notably. So I, I mean, um, you make the argument for all sides. I, I think with Bobo, it just it made you know what they let's be honest, y'all. They they don't have two three years to install you know, an elaborate new system. You and, have a year. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I imagine they're going to try to keep as much of the verbiage, as much of the conceptual aspects of this offense as they can the same. I mean, they, they almost have to. And I, I think having uh, BMAC, you know, I, I'd, I'd imagine some of what they called is uh, called the same thing that Bobo called it just because of BMAC's history with Bobo that's true um you know but I, I think it's going to be on the staff to figure out the best way to introduce the new stuff uh, as quickly and as efficiently as possible and I think having these connections and, and you know what if you got you got what 10 10 on-field coaches you've got 85 players that are on scholarship you've got 
analysts on the offensive side, analysts on the defensive side. You've got grad assistants. You've got student assistants. Um, having everybody on the same page, um, having guys you can trust when the uh, chips are down, so to speak, when things aren't going well, um, it's very easy to have some dissent within the ranks when you have this many people involved in something. So there is some value in sort of uh, going to battle with guys that you trust and that you know and that, um, some, you know, sometimes, yes, you do need the completely new blood, completely new take. We've, we've seen that work places, but also we've seen coaching staffs that honestly deteriorate from within. Mm-hmm. Um, so having guys you trust, particularly coming off a disappointing season, um, it can can be a big part about of this as well. And I, I think, again, if you if you brought in a new offensive coordinator to go back to that, um, you know, because that's really what's made bring in Bobo, obviously being the former Georgia guy, is what made this such a Georgia-centric staff because then in turn, that's why Joe Cox is here. That's why South Carolina brought um, another offensive analyst from Colorado State that has ties to Georgia as well. And that, that's sort of what directly led to this. But if, if you completely blow it up, Brian McClendon is probably not here. He's probably gone as well. Right. So uh, having staff continuity but also having guys in the room that like each other and respect each other is a big part of it too. I think that's why a lot of these staff decisions have been, I think, addressed in a pretty healthy way because, like you said, yes. you do need to change some things. South Carolina's done a good job of changing it up, of getting some new voices in there. Three new assistants on offense. We're about to talk a potential new I mean, not a potential new, a pending new assistant on defense, but you still have enough continuity, enough familiarity between those guys, between the systems, that it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be the standard like two to three year process or one to two year process to totally overhaul, which I think is really important. Uh, two more staff changes to get to. We'll stick with the on the field football roles. This was a little bit surprising. I didn't see this coming until it's. Uh, I started to hear about it yesterday, and then it all precipitated pretty quickly. But South Carolina linebacker coach and special teams coordinator. Coleman Hutzler has left for the same position at Texas. Um, I was a little bit surprised by this. I don't know when y'all heard that this was happening, but this seems like a potentially significant loss for South Carolina because special teams have been you know, pretty good under Hutzler. Well, I think the thing, uh, when, when we first sort of started hearing about it, hadn't quite confirmed that it was definitely happening yet, but it looked like it was going to happen. We'd heard that it was a you know really good opportunity for him, and so that sort of made me think he's getting some kind of title. I don't know financially. Um, if he's getting a raise there, I would think so. But he is getting a co-defensive coordinator title. Um, so that's obviously with, with a guy like Hutzler, who I think in the future wants to be a defensive coordinator and has that capability. Um, you know, he that is something that can be helpful to your career track. And then it's just a different opportunity. You know, he's been at some other places. You know, Boston College was a place he was at. He's been some other places. But he was at, at Florida with Will Muschamp. And so sort of breaking away here um, to do his own thing and, um, you're right. I mean, special teams largely, um, for the most part, have been pretty good during during the tenure there, um, and he did some good things. I know he was a valued member of the staff uh, for Will Muschamp and, and a guy that, that they liked and one of his first hires uh, when he got to Columbia. Yeah, so where does that leave South Carolina in terms of potential candidates? Who are they looking at for that next job? Is that something where you bring Kyle Krantz back into an on-the-field role? So it is a possibility um, from what we're told that, you know, Kyle Krantz, of course, recently moved off the field again after being promoted to the 10th assistant in 2018, um, you know, to sort of make room. That's just how it had to work. Somebody had to either leave the staff or sort of slide off the field. And so, um, 
you know, the, if the timing was different, Krantz might just build, still, still be on staff. But and I feel like that's why this is a little bit of a surprise. If they if they had known that this was coming even last week, again, what was that press conference last Wednesday or last Thursday when they introduced yeah. uh, Joe Cox or mentioned that they were hiring Joe Cox? If they had seen this coming, I feel like they wouldn't have initially made that move right. to move Kyle Krantz. So this seemed that that's just what leads me to believe this is a little bit of a surprise. But that is part of a conversation. Is he option one for South Carolina at this point? I don't. I don't really have a good sense of. I just know it's a possibility. I don't know if it's option one, but uh, you know, you could move him, and then that sort of begs the question of, you know, how, how would the responsibilities shake out? Because um, Krantz was um, a, a significant assistant on special teams, so could you promote him to just coach the special teams? Um, would he keep the nickels and Sams, or would he move over to say safeties? And then Will Muschamp move to linebackers? For Mike and Will, because he does obviously have experience there, and he obviously knows his own system and, and what he wants. But um, I'm not sure. But it is a possibility whether or not that will be the move. I don't know. I do know that um, there are going to be outside candidates that are considered um, throughout this week. As far as the timing, you know, could something happen before this weekend? Maybe. Will it stretch into next week or longer? Maybe. I, I just don't really have a good sense of how it's definitely going to progress. Well, I think that's the key takeaway probably that the fans are most interested in is that there will be other considerations, um, you know, in potential interviews as opposed to just, hey, we're just going to make this move um, without seeing what else is out there. Um, You know, hard to say right now what guys might, you know, you can start to sort of maybe name guys that make sense. Um, You know, Chris and I talked about Rod Wilson being a guy that might make sense. Former Gamecock linebacker, he's assistant special teams coach uh, with the Chiefs right now, had interest in a job previously at South Carolina. Um, you know, you can sort of pick out guys that would make sense, but it's hard to say yet what direction Muschamp might go. But, the, you know, you hear about coaches sort of having a list in their mind at all, at all times. Uh, I think that's true. Whenever there's an opening, coaches all, already sort of have an idea of, oh, that's a guy that I like what I've seen. I like what I've heard. I have a former tie to him. Or I, I, there's normally, even if you sort of go, you know, what is it, the Kevin Bacon uh, six degrees of separation or whatever, um, there's some connection to where, you you know, you, you hear these coaches know what, what other coaches they respect and have played against and seen that do a good job, et cetera, et cetera. College so, football is very incestuous. Yeah, so they'll, he'll, you know, he'll check it out and then see if either Krantz is the right move or someone else is. I would imagine that's a spot that Carolina would look to fill pretty quickly. We're just we're like forty days away from spring practice, and obviously you want to have that guy in place then, and you want to give him enough time to familiarize himself with the system that he's not, you know, basically going through spring and trying to learn everything in the same way that his players are. So yeah. I don't know exactly what the timeline is on that, but this is a great opportunity to mention that if you want to be completely up to date on the search and eventual hire of South Carolina's next. I guess, presumable defensive assistant, whether it's linebackers, whether it's Nichols, Sam's, wherever it ends up being, GamecockCentral.com is the place to do that. And GC Pod is what you can use as the exclusive podcast code if you want to get a month of insider access on Gamecock Central for free so that you can be up to date on that coaching search for South Carolina so that next time you're hanging out with your friends, like, I don't know, watching the conference championships, and they're like, hey, what's South Carolina going to do about Coleman Hutzler leaving? You can be like, I know. Let me share this information that I acquired via GamecockCentral.com after some great work by Wes Mitchell and Chris Clark. So go subscribe to uh, GamecockCentral.com. GC Pod is the exclusive code, month for free. Last bit of staff news for South Carolina. This is an off-the-field role. It's, like, nice. I don't know. It looks cool. Good story. 
whatever. Nice passing of the torch. You go from an A-plus to an A-plus. I don't know how much of a difference this makes, but people were very excited to find out that after Marcus Lattimore decided to leave his position as the head of the Beyond Football program, the player development, which people were sad about, people were excited to hear that he was being replaced by probably the only person, is it fair to say probably the only person that would be as fitting to have that role as Marcus Lattimore, and that's Connor Shaw? I mean, that's that's going from a real A-plus to another A-plus in that position. Yeah, pretty natural progression, I think. And, and a guy that the fans guy. actually know, obviously. and um, Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, that for that transition, that's about as smooth as it could possibly go. I don't know what kind of impact that has in general on the football program or whatever. I don't really have an opinion about that. You know, it's yeah. cool that Marcus is around. It's cool that Connor's around the program. That probably looks good may help with recruiting, although they're not allowed to officially recruit. It's like, hey, look at this guy. You mm-hmm. know who this guy. You recruit probably remember watching Connor Shaw when you were in middle school and when he lit up Georgia and thirty five to seven and all that stuff. But I don't know how much of a difference it actually makes. Yeah, and I, I mean I, I think you need you need a guy to be around the players that that, you know, has has been through what they go through on a day to day basis, the ups and downs, um the I think one thing we don't talk about and doesn't get written about enough uh, in college football is the mental hurdles the mental grind um, you know the mental just sort of negativity that also can creep into a player's mind especially if they're not playing early in their career and these these kids go from being you know they're recruited they are, are told how great they are they're most of them the, the best player on their high school team they're big man on campus they come you know, to college with these huge dreams, and, and not all of them are going to be successful. Not all of them are going to be great. Not all of them are going to play. And uh, that realization is very, very difficult on a lot of guys. Um, the The mental aspects of being injured and being out, and uh, you know, not being able to play, is also a a tough thing on a lot of kids. And that part of it is not really put into focus enough. So having someone who's been through it can talk them through it, can uh, sort of be a, a sounding board for them and help them get help in those areas, uh, I believe is is a important aspect of every program, whether it's Connor Shaw doing it, Marcus Lattimore, or somebody else. Um, you know, to me, it's not really so much about who it is. It's just that they have someone there who can give them guidance in those aspects off the field. And it's a nice story. Yes. Marcus Lattimore, uh, thank you and farewell. Say the South Carolina fans, welcome to Connor Shaw, I yes. guess. And, and by the time they listen to this, they'll be able to uh, have watched, they'll be able to watch the press conference right. um, introducing Connor Shaw. So there you go. That about does it. I, I say about does it. We spent almost 50 minutes on that. It's supposed to be the offseason. Seriously, like more has happened this offseason there, for South no Carolina. There's no offseason, though. I mean, there's not, but this offseason has been more eventful than most of the football season was, which is remarkable yes. and a blessing for us because hey, sign up for content. gamecock central sign up for gamecockcentral.com rate review subscribe to this podcast that's totally free by the way we yes. give we give this to you for free we just like doing it we, i love sitting here podcasting with the two of you especially when we get off on there. tangents about yeah i stand y'all sit um especially when we get off on tangents about gym injuries and chris's hernia which i feel like we hear about a lot maybe not on the podcast but definitely off the podcast <laughs> i'm whining about it i'm really sorry that sounds awful man that's why like what like an organ like pushes through your through your muscle 
like ruptures the like the muscle or something and pushes through. I think it's something like that. It's similar to that. Yeah. But you're better. Now, we won't right? talk about it since you just told me not to anymore. No, no, now no. I, now I whine about my ankle it's more. Just, I'm, yeah, I'm seriously. to that. You're fragile, man. I guess yeah. that's what happens when you get old. Yeah, it sucks. Are we going to talk um, about the national championship a little well, bit? Well, yeah, i got to get to a couple we... recruiting things real quick. Oh, yeah, uh, South Carolina's got some unofficial visitors in town this coming weekend. We planned to talk about that. Yeah, then... We did. We did. We got it all in the rundown. Um, juniors, so class of 2021, unofficial. Y'all got a short list, some guys, or, or an idea. I don't know if y'all know exactly who's going to be on campus since it is in an unofficial capacity, but uh, what are South Carolina fans, who, should, who from whom should South Carolina fans be expecting to hear after this weekend? You got a little... Yeah, we got a little list of some guys that we've confirmed, and they're still building out the list, like waiting on some more confirmations before this weekend, but, um, you know, one of the... Well, first of all, there, there's a couple big names on the O-line from Georgia that are going to be in town. Um, Cedric Nicely, who's a guy from Gainesville, a uh, teammate of Makia Scott, who signed with South Carolina in December. He's a guy that they like a lot um, and, and is someone that hasn't picked up a ton of offers yet, probably will pick up more you know, into later this year, but they really like him a lot, jumped in early. Micah Morris, who's a, who's a higher four-star guy who has offers from, shoot, everywhere, Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Clemson. Um, as someone who's been on campus a lot, I think Auburn and Georgia have probably had more traction as of late, but getting him back on campus, a positive. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, one of the guys I talked to in the industry yeah. says basically Mike Morris should be the number one offensive tackle in the country. Like yeah. Some people think that highly of this guy, that he's just that athletic freak, uh, future, future starting SEC left tackle potential. Can he so. sign in February? For next year? No. <laughs> Double early signing period? <laughs> He's going to enroll early, like literally yeah. an entire year. <laughs> All right, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, you're good. Uh, I mean, that's a good point. A uh, couple others to watch. You know, Jordan Dingle, he's a four-star uh, tight end out of Kentucky. South Carolina, um, you know, is familiar with his brother um, during the recruiting process as well. Brother Justice ended up at Georgia Tech. So Jordan's a guy who's going to – he's been on campus before, going to make his way back, four-star tight end. And uh, another one that really stood out to me is Thaddeus Franklin. He's a 2021 running back out of Miami, a former Miami commitment. And he made an early commitment to Miami when Thomas Brown was on staff. So Thomas Brown was his lead recruiter. And, uh, you know, as soon as Thomas Brown moved over to South Carolina, we started here. And, you know, Franklin was still committed to the Canes at that time. But we heard that, you know, South Carolina would be a consideration. So I think this is the first time they're getting him on campus since then. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to track and see what happens there. But it'll be those guys and some other ones from the 2021-22 class really over the next few weeks. But th- this weekend I think is going to be a pretty significant one. Especially if you can get a guy that might be the best left tackle of the entire class. That sounds like a, a good person to be in with early if you're South Carolina. Now, not a lot has changed with the 2020 class. Obviously, early signing period wrapped up, and nothing else can happen in an official capacity until the late signing period begins in February. Uh, but Wes, do you have any updates, worthwhile updates, on the 2020 class? Or is it still pretty much the same list that South Carolina is looking at for this late signing period? Pretty much the same list, but there is a little bit of movement with some of these guys. Uh, the one we've been tracking the most and probably have had the most uh, content on is Ja'Kari Caldwell, uh, Northwestern wide receiver. Um, still appears to be a major target for South Carolina. He has set his official visit uh, to Columbia for the final weekend before the February signing day, which is February 5th. So that's like... Uh, January 31st, I believe, is that Friday. So he'll be in. South Carolina will get the last shot at him. Um, the big sort of interesting thing to track there is that Clemson has been sniffing around him as a possible offer. Um, that would make things interesting. Uh, 
for one, we don't know if they're actually going to offer, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to. The level of interest there is, you know, either here or there. We're not sure quite if they're going to actually step forward with the offer. They've at least made it known they're interested. If they offer, I think he'll at least consider them because of where that program is, what they've done with wide receivers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, losing the um, national championship, yeah, great place to the, be. Uh, you know, but I, I still think South Carolina is in the best position, even if Clemson offers. So we'll see. That's That'll be one to track. And then um, Henry Paris, the running back from the state of Florida, uh, a guy that South Carolina has been in on for a while now, took an official visit during the season. He's going to make his decision at some point this week. Um, that'll be something, if you are a subscriber, continue to look on the website. We are efforting finding out the latest there. Been a little, you know, it's a guy from, from you know, South Florida area. It, it's never that easy to get consistently good information on these kids. It's hard to sort of lock in, but South Carolina's in it. Ole Miss has been mentioned a lot uh, with the Lane Kiffin hire, some, you know, new excitement there, but he is someone to at least keep an eye on. So th- those are the two guys right now, at least as far as the next uh, you know week or so, to keep keep an eye on some possible movement with those guys. Just a couple more podcasts between now and the late signing period, so we'll keep you all posted on all those movements and anything that we don't get to on the podcast. As you mentioned, Wes, GamecockCentral.com will have all those scoops for you, provided you are a subscriber for, for the most part. For the most part. There's some free stuff on there that's good, but if you want all the good good, got to be a subscriber. You mentioned the national championship game. You mentioned Clemson. I really want to make this about Clemson, but this is about LSU. 42-25. to 25, LSU kneeled inside the five to end the game. They missed a field goal. Jamar Chase dropped a touchdown pass right before they ended up missing the field goal. They started at least, I'm just doing it off the top of my head now, so don't at me if the number's wrong, but I think they started three drives, maybe four drives, inside of their own 10-yard line, and they still scored 42 points. They could have easily scored... More than 50. They were minus five. They covered that comfortably. Uh, I guess the only negative from that game, from my perspective, was that the over-under, which I didn't bet on, by the way, but I told people to bet the over. Do you know what the over-under was, guys? Do you know where it finished? It start, It opened at like 70 or 71, something like that. Is it 67? It finished at 67 and a half. And the game finished 42-25. And LSU took a knee inside the five-yard line. So all the people that I told about the over, I deeply and sincerely apologize that's a real bad beat right there. But for me, this is all about LSU. Is that is that fair? Is this all about LSU for you guys? Yeah, I mean, they're the best team in the country. They had the absolute perfect storm that made... I mean, how, 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 how does this happen? That Joe Burrow, this guy with immense untapped potential is already on your campus. You have these wide receivers, which LSU has always had talent at wide receiver, and they've blown that talent. And then this 30-year-old dude, Joe Brady, who happens to be with the Saints, comes in, uh, revamps your passing game, but it ha- happens to be able to fit in with your other coaches, your other co- you know, your offensive coordinator, who uh, sort of has to be willing to let this young, hotshot dude come in and take – you know, away a lot of your shine, really, a lot of the credit, even though you're still calling the plays. Um, and it all fit together to make uh, what literally um, may be the greatest college offense that we've ever seen. They scored more and, points than any offense ever, but they also played a few more games than most offenses have had the opportunity to. Yeah. So, 
And, and then um, one day later, it's pretty much blown up. Joe Burrow will obviously be in the NFL. Joe Brady will be in the NFL, much closer to us now, right down the road in Charlotte. And uh, this sort of just fifth, you know, fifteen game flash of greatness, um, you know, happened, and, and now it's over. But it, it was pretty awesome to watch while it happened. Uh, lots of questions for LSU to, to expect them to. They're, they're not going to fall off, obviously, immediately. I think but, they have two seniors on defense, and maybe a couple other guys that'll leave early. But yeah, but I mean, that's not going anywhere. But to expect what we saw this year from the offense. Um, I don't think that's very uh, – I don't think it's going to happen. But still, just amazing, fun to watch. It, it felt like for about a quarter, Clemson and, and uh, you know, Venables, they were throwing some stuff at LSU that they didn't really have an answer for. And then once they solved the riddle, it was on and it was over. I don't know if there are many people that like Joe Brady – or excuse me, Joe Burrow as much as I do. Chris is definitely on the short list. Yep. 60 passing touchdowns. Chris. Crazy. How much do you love Joseph Burrow? Oh, he's the man. Is no that doubt. did did this did getting the 60 touchdowns, which again, it was it who was the kid from Hawaii? Was it Colt Brennan? Yep. Yep, that was him. So, he broke Colt Brennan's record and as much as I am a Joe Burrow stan, I don't know if that should totally count cuz I imagine Brennan did it in 12 or 13 games and Burrow had an extra couple games to do it. I'm fine giving him the title. I was re- I was actually I don't even want to say really sad. I was devastated that he did not finish the season with the completion percentage record, which Colt McCoy now holds by four-tenths of a percentage point. Ah. And I don't know if all the drops in the national championship game necessarily would have made the difference. I, don't, I haven't gone back to actually do all that math. Um, but very unfortunate. I wanted him to have that record. But f- over 5,600 yards, 60 touchdowns, over 76% completion percentage on almost 11 yards per attempt. His passer rating was over 200 is this the greatest season by an individual player in the history of college football, Chris? Oh, wow. You went really hard. So, first of all, Colt Brennan did that in the 2006 season, and they played 14 games. Okay. Oh, conference championship and then bowl game. Okay. All right. That's right. Yep. Um, so, and they only lost three games that year. They went 11-3. and three. Um, So, one so more game, one and more game record by three touchdowns? Yep. And, and you're not— and, and playing— you're not playing SEC defense. Yeah, they here. played. I mean, LSU beat seven top ten teams. Okay, but I don't like that because Texas was number nine when they played, and Texas was not a top ten team. But here's what I do like. Who's better, Texas or Nevada, Eastern Illinois, Fresno State, oh, for New sure, Mexico? For sure. But, no, I, you, you make, you're making the right point. You're just not doing it the right way. They beat, oh, okay. they, <laughs> beat, the, they, beat the, they beat the preseason top four team and five teams that finished in the top eight at the end of the season, which is what matters. Because, again, Texas, I think, was still a good team. But the preseason well, top four was, they were okay. in no particular order, Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Georgia. And they beat all of those teams. Yeah. I mean, Georgia, they lit up Georgia's deep. Georgia's defense really good. Mm-hmm. They lit those guys Clemson's up. defense overrated all season long, overinflated stats. Still a good defense. Still I don't a good think, defense. Uh, but yeah. Well, it, let's see. Clemson's defense was probably, what, the th- third best defense that LSU faced this year? Probably behind Georgia and Auburn. Similar to Florida. I, I, I could go with that. Yeah. yeah, I could go yeah. there. So tied for the third best defense that LSU faced this year. But it didn't matter. So that, yeah. I guess that was Joe Burrow. I mean, he had an unbelievable game, 460-something yards, five touchdowns, no picks. But it was a season-low 
for completion percentage in a single game. His second lowest completion percentage in a game. That was like 63%, I think, was the national championship. His second lowest completion percentage for a single game this season, I think, was that Utah State game. He completed like 67% of his passes, which is just mind-numbing. Yeah, I mean, and, and one touchdown drop, there were there's one other that went through a guy's hands, just sort of got there a little bit quick. I mean, Jamar quickly. Chase had three drops in that game. He had an awesome game anyway, but he had like three drops, two of them early, and then obviously the touchdown yeah. they dropped. And that was with, I mean, Justin Jefferson didn't get, even get involved until late. You know, I couldn't believe I, mean, it. I looked at the box score at the end of the game. Yeah. He had nine catches for over 100 yards. I don't think he had his first catch till halfway through the third quarter. That's what it seemed like. I mean, it, it was late. And and the tight end, you know, obviously made a lot of plays. And Burrow, you know, stepping up and being able to run. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, awesome again. Dude, such um, an underrated back all season Offensive line did a good job. Clemson was undermanned a little bit up front. You know, they played that 3-1-7, and Niles Pinckney was out. The, their strength has been the back end, right? Isaiah Simmons, who is as good a player as I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, their linebacker play was good. They lost Skowski later. Um, Simmons was still really good. And then that back end, I mean, A.J. Terrell had good coverage, <laughs> pretty good coverage, about as, as about as well as you could hope for a guy to cover someone like Jamar Chase, and, and the pr- throws were just perfect. Yeah, perfect throws, great catches with guys, uh, you know, right there in phase at times. Who, so who, who had the best season – if we're giving Burrow, who who did he just surpass basically? Because for me, I had Cam Newton. I was gonna say I think twenty ten like, Cam. Yeah, yeah. twenty. Uh, and I was just looking. I was trying to sort of compare them. Cam, he had fifty. I think total touchdowns. I think he yeah. had like twenty six passing and twenty four rushing or something like that. Yeah, thirty passing touchdowns and um, twenty rushing. Touchdowns. Just thirty and twenty. Okay, so fifty touchdowns. Yeah, he he rushed. For one thousand four hundred and seventy-three yards, <laughs> which and is for what three thousand? Uh, let's see, twenty-eight hundred. Yeah, passed for twenty-eight hundred and fifty-four yards. So Joe Burrow passed for more yards than Cam had total, including one of the greatest rushing seasons we've ever seen by a quarterback. Yeah, that's mm, that's insane. That's stupid. Now, I, I did this, I guess, right after Joe Burrow won the Heisman on my local show. You know, poll question discussion day. Who has the best individual season ever? You know, there's some like an 88 Barry Sanders where he rushed for 2,600 yards and like 30 something touchdowns, I think. So, in the same way that we will have to wait several years to really earnestly have the conversation about where this LSU team as a whole is in the pantheon of all time great college football teams, we probably should wait to give ourselves some distance so that we don't suffer from recency bias with Joe Burrow. But the way that he did it, as efficiently as he did it, and that's the thing that I mean, really just. The stats are amazing, but so 60 touchdowns, six interceptions, a 10-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. That's that's stupid. Can I present one more to throw in? Yeah, yeah, please. 2007, Tim Tebow. Oh, yeah. All right. 67% completion. Almost 3,300 yards passing. 32 touchdowns to six interceptions. 23 rushing touchdowns. 895 rushing yards. Still fewer total touchdowns. There's still fewer yeah. total touchdowns than Burrow had passing. And he probably had what? Probably had a handful of rushing touchdowns. Four, five, six, maybe. Who's this? Burrow. Oh, Burrow. Yeah. Not sure about that. I'll effort that. And then I wonder how many rushing yards he had. I wonder if he uh, eclipsed. He had about 300 or so, I think. Oh, my gosh. 300? Because he had, I think he had like 5670. So he needs like. 368 rushing yards with five rushing touchdowns. Okay, so he eclipsed the 6,000 total yard mark. 6,000. Is that right? 5671 plus three whatever? 
Yeah. Yeah. As long as it was more than 329. If it was 5671, which I think it was. It was. I'm looking at it. 6,000 yards, 60 touchdowns, six interceptions. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's the other thing I was about to say. This Wait. dude's gunslinging out there, but he only threw six picks. I know. Well, and that's the amazing part. He throws it deep, which is why the yards per attempt is really important because he's not just dinking and dunking. Like, I think Colt McCoy, when he set the record for completion percentage in a season, his yards per attempt was like nine, which is still pretty good, but it's not outrageous. Like, 11. That's like, I think that's the sixth or seventh highest yards per attempt over the course of an entire season in the history of college football. But I'm just playing this out in real time now, so forgive me if this is a little bit um, harebrained, but 6,000 yards, 60 touchdowns, and six interceptions. I love Joe Burrow. He's confident. He's cocky. He's amazing. Does that confirm that he's the Antichrist? I knew you were 6, going 6,060 and six? It I don't really know how to respond to that, but... He also threw 527 <laughs> passes yeah. to throw six interceptions. And, and that was the thing about, I mean, when they were finally, when it was finally like a little bit of time left in the fourth quarter, they started being like, all right, we're going to run the ball and get out of here. But they just, otherwise, they just kept throwing it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that was the thing. I, you know, God, I mean, they're dedicated to the throw, throw game, and they stuck with it. That's what they do. Stay aggressive. The only, That's how you win. The only surprise I had was when they attempted that field goal. Me too. Early on, I was like, oh, they're yeah. going for this. It was like fourth and four from the 30. Yeah, and like, their kicker was like 12 of 19 or 12 of 20, something like that. Yeah. That surprised me. And that was disappointing because that was the difference in possibly the overhitting. I, I think, let's see. I'm going to, to get back to the question, I'm, I'm going to. be the Antichrist? No, not that one. <laughs> I and I don't even have a great reason for this other than just what I saw with my eyes looking at both guys. I put Cam Newton twenty ten over Tebow hmm. any any season. Yeah. Um because I, Tebow was awesome, man. But his intangibles make the difference for me though. Like just his will. His indomitable will. Not We're that just Cam talking didn't about the season, that. right? Cam, Cam like, Newton had a lot of will to win a lot of yeah, football that, games. Oh, too. That Iron Bowl was ridiculous. <laughs> so, I don't so know. He, I just I just think about Tebow as like the consummate leader. Well, he is it's a great leader, but I'm yeah. I'm just talking about just what they did. Okay. You know, one season see, output. See, yeah, one season output, or, or even you know, pick any of. I think the '07 season for Tebow was the most. That was the Heisman one. year, but not the national championship year. It was like Chip right. and they six played and thirteen eight. games, so that couldn't have been the. Yeah, yeah, yeah they. I think they won so, it in six and eight, and then he won the Heisman the year that he didn't win the national championship. Right. So he I mean, scored you just, like hundred touchdowns in Columbia. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say a hundred of these. Yeah, I think it was know, fifty touchdowns were yeah. were in Columbia, but you know, I, I just. Just strictly, really, all that, and I don't even have Cam's numbers anymore in front of me to to compare him. But I I would still put Cam above just because Tebow. I, I got to dock him a little bit because some of his was Percy Harvin left, Percy Harvin right. Mm-hmm. You know, and and Cam had some good players too. But who's Cam's best receiver? So much of what he did was individual. Darvin Adams, maybe. Um, what was he that had guy's a, name? he had, did he have Trey Mason in his backfield? Yeah, Mike Dyer. Oh yeah, that's who it was, Michael. Dyer. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had uh, he had a little scat back guy that I can't remember his name. Okay, but that you're right. That's a really good. That's a really good tiebreaker. We're trying to remember who's who Cam's position. Yeah. Ontario players were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. McCaleb. Um. So he had. Um. I'm trying to look at the uh, receiver. All right. So is Cam or Joe Burrow hired for you? That's Which that's what I was trying to get to next. Yeah, Darvin Adams. Yeah. Um. Sorry. Good pull by me there. Heck yeah. Um, <laughs> And Philip Lutzenkirk in the late. Oh yeah, yeah, it was on that team. Um, man, that is really. 
think about all the good teams that LSU beat. Think about all the points they scored. Literally the most points ever in the history of college football. I think I got to go with Burrow. All the good defenses. Yeah. Unbelievably the, the difference efficient. maker. The difference maker. You know, when, when you really look at it, you, you go, you go, Burrow. You look at his really good runner, also, and really smart, and how he navigates the pocket and can buy time and, and stays can run behind out. the line. Just there was one right. play in the national championship where he's scrambling, and ninety nine out of a hundred quarterbacks just take off and pick up three yards or whatever. But he kind of does the. Uh, Pat, we saw Pat Mahomes do it in the divisional round this past weekend, where he kind of tiptoes right on the line of scrimmage and then just flicks a little pass forward and ends up being a fifteen yard pickup. And he. Burrow's a way better runner, oh way gosh. better athlete, yeah. and way faster than he because he's such a good passer. Mm-hmm. Right, that side doesn't get, but the but he's so smart about it. Yeah, and and the quick decisions, like when he decides I'm gonna go, like it, the dude Should gets no up to speed. Yeah. yeah, and how about that quarterback draw before the half? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. For, third and goal to score. Uh, what, oh, oh the, no. one, the one to set up the other touchdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah on that, third and ten. But if he if he gets stopped. Short of the first down, no points. No point. I mean, it's a great call. That's one of those. That's one of those calls where it's a great call if it works. If it works, and then <laughs> yeah. if it doesn't work, we're all talking about what an idiot. Yeah, but well, fortunately, that, he was channeling Dylan Thompson on that one. Yeah, well, they felt good about it too because they know how smart of a runner he is, right? right? So they can well, feel both good. Quarterbacks are so much more mobile than people give them credit for. They're both really good runners. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, we saw it especially in that semifinal game. You know, sixteen carries against Ohio State. I don't remember how many yards he ended up having, but that was kind of the difference in that yeah. game in terms of Clemson getting the offense back on track. And then for Burrow, it was weird for the first time this year, and I've watched a lot of LSU. I've watched some of at least most of their games. We saw Joe Burrow in the first half get a little bit of happy feet, and we never see him do that. And then he settled into the game a little bit more, which makes sense. It's a big stage. He'd never been there before. So it makes sense that there's a little bit of adjustment. And then by the end of the game, he was calm and composed as ever. Um, you know, staying yep. in the pocket, keeping his eyes downfield. But early on, it was like, uh-oh, Joe Burrow looks a little nervous. But he he got he got that out of his system pretty quickly. But all the defenses that he's done it against. And again, Clemson, I don't think that they were – I think their numbers are overinflated. I don't think that's a crazy argument. I don't think me saying that means I'm, like, super biased, in, like, against Clemson or anything, although I am. I, I think Clemson's defense is still really good. But if you're making the argument just based on the numbers, I think you're making the right point for the wrong reasons. And I, I think we saw that. You know, on display, it's it's a great LSU offense, but I don't think Clemson was the number one pass defense in the country. No, and I think the uh, some of the happy feet early was that Clemson had a had a game plan. They came out in the the one three seven LSU. I think struggled early on to figure out where these blitzes were coming from, and they mm-hmm. were coming from every angle. And it seemed like once they sort of made some adjustments on that, and there was a little bit more time for him to operate, um, he started making some throws. Then his receivers settled in, you know, settled in. They started making plays like they have all year, and it's it's crazy how much flow is like big in an offense, like rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could just feel. I, I kept waiting on Clemson's offense to have you know that moment where you're like, all right, they're about to go score three drives in a row too. Right. And and there were there were times you know, after LSU missed the field goal. Yeah. Um. There was another sequence. There were a couple sequences where it felt like that's where Clemson gets back in the game, and LSU's defense was. Terrific. You know, everyone made a, a big deal about Ohio State's corners, Okuda, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but LSU's got every bit as good of defensive backs. And people were dumping on LSU's defense all year because they gave up a lot of garbage points. The counting stats weren't great, but, you know, obviously Stingley's the only freshman on the All American team, and Christian Fulton's going to be a first round pick, and you got Grant Delpit, who's also probably going to be a first round pick, and Chason had a really good year at linebacker, and Queen, I thought, had a really good game there in the national championship, just across the board, they were really, really good defensively. 
And the other part of it, the, the, the storyline that hasn't been talked about enough, which I think is fine because, like I said, I think this should be about LSU. Maybe Carolina fans maybe want to make it about Clemson, and that's fine because that's fun. But Trevor Lawrence, sub-50% completion, just missed a ton of passes. And look, the coverage was really good. Towards the end of the game, as Clemson was in a hole and they had to pass it, LSU was a little more comfortable just pinning their ears back and getting after Lawrence. They got some pressure on him. They knew that it was coming, so it's easier to defend that. But he missed a lot of passes. Sub-50% completion percentage, no touchdowns, no picks. He did have the fumble and like 250 yards. Joe Burrow significantly outdueled Lawrence. And everyone was saying, you know, Lawrence is the better quarterback. And he may still be the better prospect, but this was Joe Burrow's day. It was. And, um, you know, yeah, Lawrence just some uncharacteristic missed throws. Still had some really impressive throws, too. Mm-hmm. Um, almost had a pick. Joe Burrow almost threw a pick that would have been a you know, been change house things. Call. Yeah, yeah would have changed things. Um but yeah, he just and I don't really know if there's a, a specific, not really a rhyme or reason to it. I mean, Trevor Lawrence obviously played in big games, big game situations before. He just wasn't on as much. Well, you I think know, it's just credit to some. how good LSU's defense actually is, despite what people thought all season. Yeah, long. I mean they they played well. Um, you know, Christian Fulton, you know, gave up some plays, but he's still a really good prospect. I mean, Clemson's receivers are really good. Derek Stingley had another really good game. Grant Delpit did a nice job. Tyler Queen, a guy you mentioned, he was all over the place. Yeah, he was awesome. um, and their defensive front, I think, um, played well, you know, just sort of keeping Lawrence at bay, getting just enough pressure. They dialed up. Dave Aranda dialed up blitzes at, at some just right times where they just got enough pressure or just able to affect things. Yeah, he and Venables both, I think, had really, really good game plans. And I, I think I think Brent, uh, Brent Venables deserves a lot of credit for getting this Clemson defense to where it was. Because I think we saw, just in, just looking at individual matchups all across the field, and again, it's it's hard when you're matching up against LSU, maybe the best offense ever, certainly the best offense we've seen in a while. It's it's hard to look at those matchups and say, well, look, they're not actually that good. But I think Brent Venables did a really good job you know, in, in setting this defense up and building it, and then the game plan that he brought specifically for this game, even though LSU scored 42 and they still sc- could have scored more early in the game, you saw him doing an excellent job of making this defense, I think, greater than the sum of his parts. Yeah, and I think that's the big, you know, early in the game, I thought, okay, you know, Clemson, which I'm not surprised, had a good plan early, and Joe Burrow mentioned that after the game. You know, they put together a good plan, did a good job, but it was can they adjust? And I figured they probably would because they've done that all year. Um, I figured they would make some plays, just some one-on-one plays, or Joe Burrow would make a play, and and they certainly were able to do that. I think for Clemson this year, the biggest thing is – you know, we'd seen in the past where their strength was the defensive front and the secondary, the back seven struggled. It's been sort of the opposite this year. They've structured things around the secondary. Isaiah Simmons, who's really, really good, he's going to be a first. Like, what uh, even is he? Round draft. I saw the, he's I saw everything. The, I, I, mean, I saw the breakdown of all the positions that he played. And he, like, lined up on the defensive line for a couple snaps. Yeah. Obviously, he plays a lot of linebacker safety. He just he does linebacker everything. Linebacker safety, yeah. I mean, he could play Like, where's he anywhere. going to get drafted? What's he going to get drafted to play? Probably an outside linebacker, but he could certainly play safety. I mean, um, he'll be a, a pass rush type guy from that position, I think. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's been really good. But they, they've built, you know, they've structured things more towards that back end because they lost so many guys up front, and, and their, their strength on the back end has allowed them to look better, almost a little bit of smoke and mirrors up front, you know, whereas in the past it was the opposite. But they did have a good plan, but LSU – you know, after weathering that storm early and getting a few key defensive. That was another thing. They got some key defensive stops that allowed the game to say, you know, 17-7 instead of Clemson going up by three touchdowns. Mm-hmm. Then you got a way different game. So no, the defense for LSU was really a key yeah. early. 
It was huge. It was great. It was a fun game, fun season for LSU. I've been pulling for them, and it was funny. I listened to my preseason Get Cocky podcast right here on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network that I did with Drew Dixon. We did some over-under win totals for all the teams in the SEC. I said over on LSU. I predicted them to win the West. I said Joe Burrow is going to be the emergent star in the SEC. Uh, the only thing that I didn't do in terms of those predictions was go far enough in predicting Joe Burrow to be the greatest quarterback ever in the history of college football and LSU to win the national championship and go 15-0, and maybe be the best team ever. Uh, but it was so fun to watch. I, like I said, I was excited for it even before the season started. So it was just really fun to kind of watch that all come to fruition. And odds are, if you're listening to this, you are probably a Carolina fan, so you're probably especially happy, uh, even if... You don't particularly like LSU. You're probably very happy that you don't have to hear from your Clemson fan friends. It was nice to go on social media on Tuesday morning and see just kind of like normal stuff on social media. It wasn't totally inundated with, you know, a lot of orange. So I would just leave it at that and say that it was really satisfying. But yeah, it was fun. For Wes, for Chris, thank you all so much for listening. Went a little bit long today. Hope you all enjoyed it. Just had to get some national championship talk. We normally stick South Carolina, but... As the biggest game in all of college football. But we'll be back next week. A little more recruiting stuff again as we get a little closer to the late signing period. And hopefully at that point we will have an update for you for South Carolina's new assistant coaches. Coleman, uh, Coleman Hutzler has left for the Texas job. In the meantime, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Colin Taylor and I had a preview of the Kentucky game. If you're listening to this Wednesday before the South Carolina-Kentucky basketball game, go check that out. Colin and I broke down South Carolina's Tennessee loss and looked ahead to the Kentucky game. And he and I will be back again tomorrow to break down the Kentucky game and look ahead to South Carolina's trip to College Station as they take on Texas A&M and try to right the ship here in SEC play. It's a lot of good stuff going on on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.